and I'd flown up to Sydney, especially for this meeting. And I was just, I was totally in that business running out of money and I needed to close an investor like then and there. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and I remember them saying to me, uh, no, we can't make this decision now. Uh, we have to come back in about five months time because why, there was some restructure because oh, yeah. there was a restructure of their fund at, at Macquarie bank. Okay. Um, and it just wasn't, it just wasn't for them then. And I was just devastated. I remember actually going down the escalators at, at uh, one Shelley street crying going, Oh, oh my God, it's just all over. It's done. <laughs> and I was just so upset because I thought this, this little baby that I'd created this business that I just wanted to see fly. I just thought at that point, I'm going to have to close it because I can't afford to fund it and run it and, and do this sort of stuff because it's just, it just, it just wasn't working. Hello and welcome to Trillions. I'm your host, Elise Grace, and today I'm chatting with John Ellis, founder and CEO of Investorist, which currently has $25 billion worth of inventory on its marketplace. It's an online business-to-business sales platform promoting and distributing off-plan and pre-construction residential properties around the globe. John has raised $9 million for this venture and already has four international offices. On the podcast, he shares plenty of stories and tips most businesses can benefit from. This episode of Trillions is sponsored by Xenox Diamonds. Mention my name or the Trillions podcast and they will give you a free upgrade to platinum with any engagement or wedding ring purchase. Find them in Brisbane or order online. More details in the description below. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, John Ellis. Thanks very much for having me, Elise. You're welcome. So, John, you're the CEO and founder of Investorist, which is um, online software and uh, marketplace. Can you tell us a bit more about what exactly Investorist is? Yeah, sure. Um, effectively, we help property developers sell their flats. That's, that's really what we do and help builders sell house and land packages. Um, that's that's our, our goal. We do that in, in two different ways. Uh, one way is we have a piece of software that powers uh, their businesses. So you might see on a range of developer websites, agent login. Yeah. Uh, that's us for about 300 companies around the world, including some massive organizations like Colliers in the UK, Chesterton's, uh, and a heap of, heap of developers. Uh, and the other way we, we do that is through a marketplace. So most industries um, like banking, uh, for mortgages, they have a marketplace. Well, we power the marketplace for off-plan property um, Very cool. for, for businesses to log into. Yeah. So um, where did the number 9,000 come from? I, you guys had nine, access to 9,000 different... Um, yeah, uh, so we've got 9,000 agencies now that use our platform to find inventory to sell to their clients. Uh, wow. So we've got offices in Australia, UK, USA and China. Mm-hmm. And around the world, there's about 9,000 different companies that, that log into Investorist, search for property, find it and, and uh, recommend it to their clients. So awesome. last, at the moment in Australia alone, we've got $25 billion worth of inventory on our marketplace. Wow. And, and last year we recorded 4,000, just, uh, just over 4,200 sales. So a lot of property moving through, um, through the, the marketplace. Very cool. And in um, resi, um, residential sales, the agents are making between 1.5 to 3% commission. Um, and then um, comm- oh, sorry, um, off the plan is usually around 6%. So how does the business model work? Do you guys make that 6% commission? How do you guys make your money? 
Yeah, so we we don't we don't make that six percent commission. Yeah. Um, that would be <laughs> that would be nice. Um, we make our money. Well, we actually do make money out of commission in some instances. So we've got three different revenue streams in our business. One is software. So those companies that use our agent login technology, uh, they pay us a licensing fee and a monthly fee based on users. So it's it's a normal SaaS model. In our marketplace. We actually charge a fee per connection. So it's um, a little bit like Tinder for off-plan <laughs> property developers. Yeah, cool. uh, we charge them based on the number of dates we deliver them. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then the third part of our business is Investress Concierge where we actually help the developers to manage those sales and then, and then we charge a commission. Uh, but it's not, it's not 6%. Unfortunately, it's only 1%. Uh, the the balance of that goes to the agents. Yeah, that's okay. That's still something. That's um yeah, that's it a is. really that's a really cool model. So um, give us a bit about your background, and then we'll jump into how you came up with the investors model. I'm really keen for the audience to hear um your background, John, and where you came from, and and how you got to the point that you're at now. Cool. Um, well, I grew up in a in a town called Albury, which is a town on the border of New South Wales and Victoria. Uh, I moved to Melbourne when I was 21 and started working for a law firm called Clayton Newts in their marketing department. And uh, my, my area of specialization there was construction of major projects. So I was helping win tenders for things like the, uh, one, of the one of the toll roads in Brisbane actually was one yeah. of the things that I worked on. Uh, and then just, just got to like the industry, worked at Mervac as their, as their marketing manager um, loved, loved, uh, loved property. And then I started my own advertising agency when I was 26. Um, I actually had a, had a big fight with my boss. He pounded his fists on the table and told me that I worked for him. Uh, and I being a bit of a hothead explained that I didn't work for him anymore. And I <laughs> left. Um, I think I used some fairly non-choice words. And so I was actually escorted from the building by security oh, guards. Um, Fun times. And then I suppose at 26, I sort of realized that I didn't really want to work for anyone anymore. Um, it wasn't really my, my vision and, and I wanted to work for myself. So I started consulting to Seabus Property was my very first client and I consulted to them on a building in Melbourne. So uh, were, you, were, you doing, were you doing marketing and advertising for, um, for, for sales agents and for the sale of properties? Yeah, for your agency? yeah okay. I was. Yeah. So I was doing, I was running marketing for a building that had completed. It was a residential project uh, on the corner of Exhibition Street and Flinders Lane. Uh, yeah, Flinders Lane in Melbourne called Herald Living uh, for CBUS. And then I just kept picking up clients. So I think I probably did a fairly good job for them. And then more clients, more clients, more clients. And it was basically word of mouth. And I kept employing people to, to grow that business and it, at its peak. Uh, the business was called Extension, Extension Co. And at its peak, we had 24 staff um, and were probably one of the bigger bigger advertising and marketing agencies in, in Australia for the property industry. Cool. And you, you told me yesterday you, um, you exited from that business. I can't remember how many years ago. And then that I did about to- two, and a half, two and a half years ago. Um, and that was really to focus on investors. So during that ad agency journey, uh, I built a number of little microsites for different uh, property developers, about a hundred of them to be exact. Um, 
And a lot of them had little agent login buttons on the back, which was at the, at the day like a glorified Excel spreadsheet. So agents would log in. Uh, usually their passwords were like agent, agent. It was really very, <laughs> yeah. very, very basic. And, and they'd be able to download price lists and availability and some documents. Uh, so it was really, really simple stuff. And then we went on to, to build a bigger version of that. Um, and I bought an agency called Lettuce Digital to, to do that. And we built some technology. Uh, it was still very basic, but it was a lot better than what we had before. And we started licensing that out to different companies. Um, and I had about, I think about six, six different developers and, and project marketers using that, that software. And I realized that, hey, there's probably a bigger business in this and, and I should look at, at developing that. And that was now seven, that was about eight years ago. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So that, that's what's led you into Investorist and, um, and uh, getting all these people on board. And so how many staff do you have now? Uh, we now have just under 20 employees around the world. Awesome. Yeah. So not a huge number of staff. Um, yeah. which is good. Um, most of our business is in technology. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, if you if you're all online, then you don't need as many staff necessarily. So yeah, um, correct. Mostly. The and guys we've been finding across, across COVID that we actually, we're actually even more efficient because we don't have to even go out to meet our clients. We can, we can run through a lot more meetings and yeah, it's yeah. actually making us more efficient. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a blessing in every crisis and it's just how you look at it and um, how you adapt and change. So yeah, I think that's yeah, great. Absolutely. It's a great attitude. And it's really interesting that you guys are being more efficient now that you're not physically going out and meeting people in person. Um, I'm sure you missed that to some extent. So, um, yeah, absolutely. So what, what's the future hold for investors? What are you really hoping to, to, uh, to get to with it? Well, we're reasonably strong in, in four countries around the world. Um, I suppose over the next couple of years, we'd really love to consolidate our position there and, and build that, that network out. Um, Australia is our home base, so we, we obviously want to be a big, a big operator here and we would love to be part of, part of most of the off-plan property transactions that exist in certainly in the, in the most of the, the Western countries around the world. Yeah. So what's the benefit? So of, what was that? Sorry? No, please. I was just going to say, what's the benefit in using your platform versus going and seeing something in person? I, um, it seems to me like more uh, investorist, seems like more investor type people are buying off the plan um, rather than like the mums and dads or first homeowners. They want to uh, probably go and see the property in person. So what, what is the benefit in buying? Yeah, absolutely. Home? So when you're, when you're buying a, an established property or you're buying a property to live in yourself, that's a really highly localized commodity. It's actually the most localized commodity in the world. Um, people tend, I, I don't know about yourself, but most people grow up in a suburb and then they buy a place not far from where they grew up and they sort of stay in that same sort of sphere. That is how people tend to work. Or they might move to another city, they'll rent somewhere for a little while, they like the area and then they'll buy in that area. That's the way traditional property works and people go into houses, turn taps on <laughs> and, and they buy something. Off-plan property is, is a, totally different, uh, a totally different sort of commodity. It really is a global commodity and it's a more of a traded commodity with uh, a range of different businesses in the, in the chain. So, um, 
I, I tell people often a story about Jimmy Chu in the Guangdong province of China and Jimmy sending his daughter to Melbourne University. Uh, and so in that process of him sending his daughter to Melbourne University, he's probably got an education advisor. He'll have a migration agent to help do visas. Um, and that migration agent will probably advise on where Jimmy's daughter is going to live. And invariably, they're going to purchase an apartment for her to, to move into. So there's all these different people in the chain. It's quite a complicated transaction because there's cross-border, there's money transfer, um, and, there's, and there's a totally different legislative environment if you're doing a cross-border sale. Yeah. Even, even locally, um, when you go to your financial planner and they say, Elise, you're just making so much money doing these podcasts, uh, we need to start diversifying your wealth, uh, let's look at some property for you, um, yeah. they'll, probably, they'll probably recommend uh, an off-plan property. One, because there is a lot more commission in it, uh, but also because it's a lot easier for a financial planner or an, an advisor to recommend. You know, it's it's a lot more it's a lot more certain where you've got an existing property. You're going to have to get building surveyors to go out there and have a look to see are the, are the footings right, are the foundations right, if they're cracking, is there maintenance issues? But if you buy off the plan, there's none of that. It's brand yeah. new, easy, it's simple. You've got a depreciation schedule. You know what it's going to rent for. It's kind of a bit of a no-brainer. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Um, well, that's exciting. I um, I can't say I've ever looked at buying buying off the plan. I'm not quite <laughs> at that stage yet. But um, I, I, yeah. as I mentioned to you last night, I've got a, a friend in Brisbane who sells a lot of property, house, and land packages. And um, and yeah, it's a I think it's a fantastic way to buy. I think that there's um there's a lot of money to be made in off the plan purchases. Um, obviously, the, am I right in saying that developers lack? it's a good deal to buy off the plan because developers need cash in and then also yeah. the property value goes up once the building's up in total. Well, that's, that's the aim. It obviously doesn't always work like that, but that's, uh, that's the philosophy. So, so typically if you're buying an apartment, the, the concept is that you buy at today's value and then within 18 months or two years when the property settles, hopefully you've seen an uplift in that price by the time you're paying for it. Yeah. If you're building or buying in a, in a new suburb or a greenfield development, the the concept again is that you buy nice and early within a development when there isn't the schools, there aren't the parks delivered, there's not that infrastructure. And then when that, that community becomes more established, property prices rise. Yeah. Um, and I think we've seen that, we've seen that play out really well over the last 20 years. Uh, and certainly over the last 10 years, that's played out pretty consistently. Uh, we'll see what happens with COVID-19, whether that throws a bit of a spanner in, in the works. But Might be some bargains. Sp- might be some bargains for sale. Look, there might be. I think, I think at the moment the, the government's played a pretty, good, a pretty good hand with their stimulus packages. And certainly for the property industry, the bank's freezing uh, loan repayments, so allowing people to suspend their loan repayments for three to six months, that that will really cushion the the blow for the property industry. Yeah. I was looking at data today that said that in Victoria, which is my home state, property sales were down eighty five percent. Oh wow! But property prices grew to point uh, two of a percent. So, 
I think people are just saying, well, why would I sell now if there's not going to be that many buyers? I can't run open for inspections. I can't do any of these sort of things. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's interesting whilst the, whilst the normal residential market is down 85%, uh, we're not seeing that in the off plan property market again, because it's a totally different sort of commodity. People are actually still buying uh, off plan properties. Okay. Mostly coming from international or within Australia or a bit of both? It's a bit of both. The Australian market for the last year has been 90% domestic. So that is Australians buying Australian property. The government implemented a whole lot of, of stamp duty uh, imposts against foreign investors. So it's really meant that the local market's where it's at for 90% of the time. Yeah. That's still, that's still the same at the moment. How's that, how's that um, gone with deterring or not deterring the Chinese? Because uh, last I read, Melbourne actually had the highest, um, the highest Chinese ownership, more than, Chi- more than Sydney, I think. So um, right. how's, how do, how's that going with the government um, restrictions? Or have they... I don't, have they- I, don't think, I don't think the government raised stamp duties to deter Chinese property investors. I don't think that was their aim. I, I think the governments in Australia raised stamp duties to, uh, to, put, a, to put some downward pressure on property prices. Okay. I don't think they were doing it to, um, to deter any one particular country of investors. Um, I, think, I think if you look at China at the moment, they've gone through some pretty tumultuous times with COVID-19. Uh, and that's, that's probably deterred investors there a little bit. Um, but the the fundamentals of Australian property are still really sound and we're still seeing, still seeing purchases from that market. Oh, that's great. Why why do you think, um, Chinese investors get a bit of a bad rap, especially in Australia? Oh, I hate to say it, but I think Australians are racist. (laughs) I agree. Um, Yeah. Well, I think, (laughs) I think it's Australia's got this sort of underlying racist tone, um, which is a bit, a bit disturbing. If you look at it, we, we blame Chinese investors, uh, in Victoria, again, where I'm from, there was the big, um, there was a, a lot of sort of media hype around Sudanese gangs and all these sort of things where if you look at really where the majority of crime is committed in and the, and the majority of issues, it's, Australian people doing horrible things to other Australian people, but uh, Australians kind of, I don't know, we love scapegoats and, and I think Australians have a little bit of a racist undertone as well, which is disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's good that we, um, I think it's good we put that out there on the table because it's, um, it's a bit of a topic of conversation in the property market from time to time. So it's, um, it's good to ask the question. I think it's, it's interesting. So um, we've jumped around a little bit, John, but going back to when um, you were developing and growing Investorist and uh, obviously you were developing the software and, and refining that with some staff, um, when did you decide or why did you decide to, uh, to bring in capital and, and how did that work for you? Oh, I actually decided to bring in capital fairly early. So we launched the platform in just in Melbourne. Yeah. And when I originally planned Investorist, I planned it as a side hustle for my ad agency. Yeah. So my ad agency was going pretty well. Um, I was made, one thing about advertising agencies, they're not, um, I mentioned I sold it, but I, that, that, that exit was not, not amazing. Um, yeah. They're a really good cash flow business. 
um, and they actually can be quite profitable and make you make you fairly good money. So that was running really quite well, and I planned this as a side as a side hustle. Soon after launching, I had um, I had this database of 180, 181 it was real estate agencies that sold off plan property that I'd amassed over my my years, and I knew those people reasonably well. And I obviously had a large network of property developers in Melbourne because that's where my, my agency was based. And so I ran around and I got some inventory and I ran around and got some, some product on the platform. Um, and my wife and I co-founded Investress. So she was in the business working with me to, to build that up while I was sort of running the ad agency. Um, and very, very quickly, I realized that the business wouldn't be much and it wouldn't it wouldn't materialize to what its potential was if we just stayed in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. So I needed to quickly expand to Sydney, to Brisbane and open an office in China. And I just knew that I couldn't afford to do that on my own. So I, I developed my own IM information memorandum and I started running around to try and raise money. Pitching. Um, pitching. Very cool. I was doing the hustle. Um, how did you go about finding, finding people to pitch to? Because um, I can picture you with your IM and I can picture you pitching, but what happens in the middle? Do you call people and ask for referrals? How does it work when you want to pitch someone an idea or a business? I did a, I did a lot of research on the people that I should find. It was actually really funny. It was a really funny journey. So I have, I get a bit obsessed by things at least. Same. So, <laughs> and I, I, I just become a bit, uh, a bit crazy. Anyway, so at the time I was obsessed around that I thought I needed a bank to be the, to be the financial partner. Uh, okay. So, so I basically just got on LinkedIn, found the right people in banks and I just hustled around, found their details. Uh, I got people's mobile numbers that you probably shouldn't get, but I just got them yeah. and I just started calling them. And I got really close with Macquarie Bank. And I can remember it now because it was just after my birthday. Uh, and it would have been, it was in 20, 2012. So it was just after my 32nd birthday. Um, and I remember having my fourth meeting with the execs at, um, at Macquarie Bank. And I'd flown up to Sydney, especially for this meeting. And I was just, I was totally in that business running out of money and I needed to close an investor like then and there. Yeah. Uh, mm. And I remember them saying to me, uh, no, we can't make this decision now. Uh, we have to come back in about five months time because why, there was some restructure. Because uh, yep. there was a restructure of their fund at, at Macquarie Bank. Okay. Um, and it just wasn't, it just wasn't for them then. And I was just devastated. I remember actually going down the escalators at, at uh, one Shelley Street, crying, going, oh, oh my God, it's just all over, it's done. <laughs> and I was just so upset because I thought this, this little baby that I'd created, this business that I just wanted to see fly, I just thought at that point, I'm going to have to close it because I can't afford to fund it and run it and, and do this sort of stuff because it's just, it just, it just wasn't working. Um, and then, interestingly enough, one of my one of my staff was pitching the product to a property developer, uh, and he pitched him in a cafe. And it, the developer said, "Look, are you looking for? I like this business. Are you looking for any money?" Um, and he said, "Well, actually, we are." 
Uh, and that was how I secured my first, my first investor, oh, um, cool. which was Salter Capital. So that was, I got a, a, an introduction and a phone number and I, I called the guy and I went and sat down in the cafe and met, met David Tarascio and uh, pitched the idea. He liked it. And they moved really quickly. A couple, like a month later, uh, they completed. Um, they they were the first investor. Yeah. Oh, that's super cool. So your, your staff came to the rescue. Staff came to the rescue. Yeah. And that uh, that staff member is a guy, Rob, and he's um, yeah, he's still an investor today. That's awesome. Oh, that's great. That obviously means that he really believes in the product. And um, yeah, so that's a really really cool story. So now um. Yeah. So you, you've spoken about um, your early journey and then how it came to be investing capital, um, where you want it to go. What are some of the lessons that you've learned along the way, John? So um, a lot of these podcasts, we talk about the wins and that's awesome. It's very inspiring. But what's something that, that um, you could call a learning experience that uh, the audience could learn from? Something that you wouldn't really want to repeat? Oh, I think, I think when I first started, actually, I think for three years, the first three or four years of Investorist, I had this, uh, I, I, I watched a lot of entrepreneurial podcasts and things like this, where you, where you talk to founders and you hear about their business and, and about their philosophy and their exit. But I'd never really realized that of all of those success stories that you hear, where they'd fluked their, or, or maybe not fluked, but they they managed to great have this great success. Mm. There was at least ten, if not twenty or thirty, sort of cases of businesses smouldering on the on the pavement beside them. And so I think what we did with Investress in the early days is, you know, I raised nine and a half million dollars worth of equity, um, which is a lot of money. Amazing. And amazing. Uh, but I think we wasted a lot of it as well. Like I think this pursuit of, of rapid growth and rapid expansion, like we put on lots of staff and we're really focused on, you, you hear a lot of tech entrepreneurs and they say, focus on your key metrics. Mm. And we knew what our key metrics were that would make us successful as a platform for our customers. And we focused solely on those key metrics. But I think to some extent in the early days, we lost a little bit of sight about the real key metric, which is your dollars and cents. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I had, uh, had in the early days two businesses running and that has got its own challenges as well because I had my ad agency where I was really focused on the dollars and cents because it yeah. was to some extent funding the investors. But, um, but I sort of lost, I lost guidance on that. And I think when I when I left the ad agency and I really solely focused on Investorist, I realized, hey, we've got a lot of financial leaks in this business. Uh, we need to plug those. And that was, that was reducing staff uh, and it was really focusing on, on the business as a business. Yeah. Um, so what, what were those been, metrics? Like what was the key things that you probably should have been focusing on more to bring in the dollars to make it grow? Uh, so we were, we were focused on user growth. So we want our key metrics that we focused on in the business was um, number of properties on platform and value of properties on platform, number of active users at any given point in time and transactional that uh, transactional velocity through the platform. But we weren't monetizing any of that. So we were charging, uh, originally we were charging our SaaS model 
that was working like a normal SaaS business. But in our, our platform, we were charging based on advertising. Advertising, uh, advertising is very old fashioned. You know, it's, you, it's arbitrary to, too what you charge. To, totally, subjective. Totally, sorry. and you're not. But but it is. It's just you're not rewarded on the value that you create. Mm. So we were we were focused on creating value for our customers, but then we had no. We were not being compensated for that that effort. So we had to pivot our pricing model, which we did about two years ago. We pivoted to a a pay per value, which is more like a Google or a Facebook, where they charge per yeah. click or per impression or whatever, um, as opposed, sorry, not per impression, per click or per action, as per opposed date. to <laughs> like per date, per date. Um, and then we also started, um, we realized that a range of our customers weren't so good at using our platform. Like real estate is a pretty traditional industry where people meet each other, they call each other over the phone and they do lots of business one-to-one. Uh, it's, very rela- it's very relationship focused still. Totally relationship focused. So if you meet an agent interstate, how do you start to form that relationship with them online and how do you get that to a transaction? And so our customers weren't, some of our customers weren't expert at that. So we realized that we should step in and actually help them with that. Um, and that, that was an, another big change for us. How did you help them? Did you have to coach them on on, on building relationships or how does that no, work? We took it over. Oh. <laughs> we just basically yeah. took over. So we said, okay, you can, there's two ways you can engage with our business. One, you can pay us per date or you can pay us per, per sale. Yeah. And, and that suited different businesses differently. Yeah. So do you guys use, um, uh, augmented reality or, or VR type stuff where, um, people can look through a property as if it's a tour online. Have you guys got that tech? happening no no that, that's very consumer fake focused technology so our stuff is more around allowing agents to search and find the properties they're looking for and to be able to compare them with each other so um the big is that, difference is that based more platform, on numbers like metrics and yeah it's based more on numbers yeah so they tend to and and we we present a lot more information so we have the ability to link to VR tours and to, and to different bits of, I guess, augmented reality. Uh, but in our platform, we focus on a lot of data. So if you're, if you're a customer and jumping onto REA and you're searching for a two-bedroom flat in Wollongabba, yeah. uh, you'll probably just, you might get a floor plan, maybe. Uh, you probably won't know the exact price. Uh, and you'll get the contact details of a real estate agent, a couple of photos. Where on Investorist, you'll get the full price list of that development. You get every floor plan in there. You'll get every piece of information that you could possibly want on it, including a contract of sale. So it's like gigabytes of documentation for each each development. Yeah, yeah, very That's cool. Focus. Yeah, and it makes it more transparent. And going back to investing in property versus, uh, you know, the first homeowners and the mums and dads and um. Yeah, you're providing all the data and, and projection of growth and things like that. Which yeah, is- so that's why, that's why agents like to use the platform because they are able to deliver better advice to their customers. So before, before Investorist, a real, a, an advisor would have to just rely on the relationships that they developed with four or five different developers or with one project marketer. Mm. Uh, and that's really hard to be able to deliver decent advice to your customers when you're just 
you're just buying from that small pool of, of suppliers yeah. where if you've got a really wide net of suppliers and you've got, you can go anywhere you like. Yeah. Yeah. It can help you make better, better recommendations. So what does it take for you guys to get into more countries? Oh, it's actually quite challenging. So every different country you move into has got a different legislative environment mm -hmm. and really importantly, it's got a different culture. So if you look at our entry to the US market, which was really hard for us, it was very, um, it was very, very bumpy. Uh, the US market has a totally different business culture to the Australian market. Yeah. In particular, they don't have, they don't have people that work in the company in the sales teams that are salary employees, they're all commission only. Okay. So you see these, these companies that have got a sales team of a thousand people. Well, none of those people are on the payroll. So if you go and say to those, those sales organizations, Hey, do you want to, uh, do you want to invest in your future? And do you want to invest in technology? And do you want to grow, uh, your network of, foreign foreign agents or even local agents yeah the answer there is just no because we don't have any money that we're spending on innovation and we don't have any people to run systems or establish relationships it's all just it's all just the next deal and the next deal which is why the american market companies like compass have just come in and gone well hold on we're going to raise equity from investors and billions of dollars worth of it. We're going to invest it in technology and they've just taken over that market. Yeah. Um, but the normal, but most businesses in that market or most real estate sales businesses, they're not investing in, in tech systems and technology and people. Wow. You think that America would be um, more forward thinking than that. Often Australia is the one behind the U S with tech, but. Oh, and it totally looks like that. Like I went on a tour there before, before we entered that market, we did, whole research paper we engaged a research company we went and, and visited a whole heap of people in that market booked ourselves meetings across the country decided to establish in miami um and i mean you know we just got it so wrong because everything they say is they talk about they talk about innovation and loving it and wanting to do it and then you ask them to you know Put the money me, where their mouth is. <laughs> yeah, give me 50 grand for that. <laughs> and the answer is no. All right. So it's just really different. Or even the ones that did, did stump up the cash and, and pay for the product, then having the back staff to resource that solution, um, there, just, there just wasn't the depth that was really, um, it's really a bit of a facade there. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, well, it's um, fascinating hearing that coming from a, uh, from technology um, after, you know, Silicon Valley is one of the hubs of the world and things like that. But um, Well, I think it's different industries. Sure. I think if you look at the tech business, um, they, they invest massively in technology. It's just when it comes to real estate, I think the real estate market is, is a bit uh, different. It's just very different there. It's very different. And that's, that's the thing. It's not the saying that it's worse. Mm. It's just culturally different. And understanding those different cultural norms is, is quite challenging when you enter new markets. Yeah. So, yeah, so obviously the challenge is for you to get in, um, get your fingers in more pieces of the pie around the world um, means navigating the cultural differences, understanding the, the climate and the market over in those countries. So it sounds like it's, it's going to take a lot of time, but it's worth it. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, cool. So 
for the, the listeners out there, and um, obviously you yourself love property, you've been in it for a long time. Um, what, what do you personally like investing in or what's your plan for investment? So some people love stocks, um, bonds, um, REITs. Some people love physical property. Um, yeah. What's your opinion on investing and what's a great strategy to set yourself up for life? I love property. Um, I, I bought my first property when I was 19. And, um, in Melbourne? And I've just kept... No, in Albury. So where I grew up in Albury, um, I, I got a job when I was just about to turn 18 for a local bank there. And I worked there for a year. I saved my first deposit and I bought a, a three bedroom house. Uh, the worst house on the best street in Albury. Yeah. It wasn't actually even the best street. It was a pretty crummy street uh, and it was a pretty crummy house, but it was really cheap and I could afford it. So I bought, I bought that when I was 19. Um, I actually owned that property until, uh, until I was 35, I think. Wow. Yeah, I owned it for a long time. Was that a strategy um, or did you just wing it? Uh, I wish I'd never sold it. So every, the only the only real estate decisions that I've ever regretted has been selling them. Yeah. I yeah. hear Grant Cardone says, um, don't sell, just hold, hold and keep don't sell. your portfolio. Don't sell. Don't sell. So look, I, I really like property. Uh, and I like, I, I guess I sold Albury because it wasn't a blue chip property in my mind. Um, so I like my strategy of what I like is, is quality properties in quality areas. So I always look for, um, you know, a building that is, if, if I'm investing into a building that is an apartment building, yeah. uh, I look for a really good quality building. I look for something that would have more owner occupiers than just investors. And I try and buy something that's, that's good. Um, so for example, I wouldn't buy into a building that had loads of one bedroom apartments because I know that's going to be an investor, investor centric property. Uh, I'd buy into a building that had, predominantly two and three bedroom apartments. Um, and when I pick suburbs, I like to buy in suburbs that I think have got a good long-term story. And that's around, um, you know, that's around people loving to live and work and play in that particular area. Yeah. So something um, with all the different facilities and, um, and dining out options and um, yeah. And, and all the big shopping yeah. centers and, and uh, yeah, absolutely. outlets available. Yeah. So you've got a lifestyle in that suburb. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I own some places in St Kilda, um, which is also where I live. Um, and I, I love that suburb. And because I think it has, yeah, I love it too. you know, it's a, it's a cool place. And so I like, I like property there, but I think, I think what, what defines a good property strategy is really understanding what you're, what you need to get out of your property. Mm -hmm. So, um, it will differ. It will differ depending on the the stage in life that someone is and their income. So if I look at my my first property investment, it wasn't blue chip. It wasn't a blue chip area, and it wasn't a great property, but it was cheap. Yeah. It was cheap, and it was going to be um, reasonably uh, cash flow, or it was cash flow positive. So that, that was the right strategy for me at that time. And for lots of investors coming into the market, their strategy has to be, well, I'm going to buy a cash flow positive property today. Um, because some, people, you really, some people want negative geared properties as well. So like you said, it's based off what... They, they do, but I think, I think there's negative gearing and then there's negative gearing. Like, um, 
if you're actually buying a, a negatively geared property, that doesn't feel like a great investment strategy to me because, because you're really punting on capital growth. Um, so I think if you're going to have a negative gearing strategy, it should be a prim primarily an on paper negative gearing strategy that you use for tax minimization. Yeah. But just buying a property to be negatively geared, I think is a, I think that's just a way of reducing your, your wealth. Yeah, right. But I think, I think when you're looking at property, if you find something in an area that you think will do reasonably well, and there is reasonable parity between what it costs you to own that property and what you're going to get in terms of income and you're just playing the capital growth game, then history has shown that you should double your money in 10 years. Yeah. Um, but if you're, if you're there saying, well, I'm going to have this property and I'm going to negatively gear it and I'm going to save on my tax and I don't know. Sounds, yeah. Know. Again, yeah, the, some of the best property... Um property guys I've listened to talk about cash flow and um, um, that that's important. So it makes sense. It's, to it's, it's totally important because your circumstances change as well over time. Yeah. And sometimes you want to access, uh, like we were talking before about banks freezing mortgages. I think had, had banks not, uh, had the government not forced banks to, to freeze mortgages, we would find the property market at the moment would be an absolute bloodbath. I agree. Um, yeah people's circumstances have changed dramatically. And if you're in a whole lot of negatively geared property uh, and your circumstances have changed dramatically, well, what buffer have you got? What margin? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, yeah, that's very interesting. And for obviously the listeners, um, it's not financial advice, but it is something that, <laughs> it's um, not financial it advice. is something, yeah, it is something that we, you know, we, we just wanted to chat about and, and a strategy that, that John thinks is in his perception is a good one. So again, it's not financial advice, but um, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, John, I like to flip the interview for one question. So um, tell me, is there, is there anything you'd like to ask me? Um, anything that you think would be a benefit to the, to the listeners or to yourself? Hit me with a question. Yeah, at least I guess you were saying that a lot of people ask you about the why, but yeah. I'm not going to ask you about the why. I would like to know the, what your what your future is what's your what does your next five ten years look like so right now um with the trillions podcast which is obviously what we're on right now um it's it's one of the times in my life where i haven't had a strict plan to something i find the best i've done when i've looked back on my life of when is when i've um had a vision for the future which i have and i'll touch on that in a sec but let myself get there um by living the journey and enjoying it along the way uh, so I'm not forcing anything with this podcast. I have had a couple of people approach me um, to sponsor it, which was a great surprise after just 10 episodes. And I'm really loving meeting people like yourself and other entrepreneurs and business people from all around the world. Um, and that's something that I've loved doing since I was a teenager, um, young and, and at university in, in Brisbane. I was constantly networking, going out, meeting people. And now I get to do it online and in person with the podcast. So if a podcast makes money, fantastic. Otherwise, I'm really happy to share stories um, for other entrepreneurs to listen to and learn from that's why i try to ask questions about your learnings rather than just all the successes so that people can actually um you know learn and hear the the pros and the cons of various business models and industries so that's the podcast um, i've also i believe got an interesting story in my life um, i recently watched molly's game which is a story about molly bloom have you seen it no i haven't so when she was 26 she was running one of the highest stakes um 
uh, poker games, underground poker games in uh, LA and New York in the US with uh, minimum buy-ins of 250,000 people losing multi- multiple millions in one hand. So she was, she was a hustler and, um, and I was really inspired by her. She wrote a book that got turned into a movie and I believe I have a really interesting life story. So I've started chipping away at a book. Um, as for a specific uh, business model of how I'm going to get to where I want to be, I'm not sure. I, I see myself speaking in front of thousands of people at some point. I see myself as, um, as making multiple millions of dollars and inspiring other people to go forth and be fearless in their pursuit of creating great businesses because that's how you do those kinds of things. Um, but in what industry, I'm not 100% sure just yet. I just see myself um, impacting the world in a big way at this stage. That's, that's great. My wife is uh, a member of a, a really cool organization called Business Chicks. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know if you've heard of it, but they, uh, yeah. Yeah, they often have lots of really inspirational women speakers getting up, talking about how they, uh, why they got to where they got and created and something amazing. Yeah. Well, I had this idea in my head, John, that um, for some reason I shouldn't write my book. The books don't make a lot of money. You know, I put it in the, in the art category. It's a very artistic, creative thing to write a book, but I, I'm, I'm a fantastic writer. I have some incredible stories that not many people know about. I'd really like to get out there because I believe if other women or other people, men as well, read my story and, and see myself pushing through these challenges that I've had, then they will um, they'll give themselves permission to move forward as well. I think that's a powerful thing. I think not everything you do in your life needs to make money. Like yeah. I'm, I'm a passionate kite surfer and I do that as often as possible. Uh, I'm not particularly great at it and, you know, it's never going to make me any money, but it's certainly something that I like to invest a lot of my time into. Yeah. And I think often um, in the past I've had mentors say to me, how are you going to monetize that? How are you going to monetize that? So um, sometimes it's in the back of my mind, but um, yeah, I think it's great just to do things that we love in life. And um, yeah, good point yeah. about the money. So um, lastly, John, is there, is there anything that you've experienced on your journey that you'd like else that you'd like to share with the listeners that you think that they could really learn from or, or keep in mind when they think of you? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, well, what, what kind of legacy do you want to leave when, when you're gone? Oh, well, I, I look at every decision that I make in business or my personal life. And I always think, um, you know, would I be proud of, would I be proud of this and proud of leaving it? So I guess my legacy, I want to leave something that I'm proud of. So that is not for me necessarily money. I know, I know you interview people and they talk a lot about, about money. I guess for me, I want to leave a legacy of, um, adding value to a range of people's lives. So that's with my staff. Um, I mentioned to you the other day, I'm designing some houses. You know, I, I, I think a lot of houses in Australia look pretty average. Um, yeah. I'm passionate about design. Uh, so I, I want to build some really nice looking houses. Yeah. Um, it's really for me, for me and my legacy is about, um, about doing, doing good things and being proud of what I'm doing and having fun uh, along the way by the sound. Having fun. Yeah. Having fun and, um, enjoying my time with my family. I have a little boy who's two, yeah. uh, who's amazing. Um, it yeah, sounds so like, I, it sounds like too, what you're doing with investors, you're, you're really helping, um, you know, obviously people can already invest. People can already invest in Australia and between countries, but 
you're making it easier for people and, and you're connecting people that maybe otherwise wouldn't have been connected. So, and that's all via a platform that you, um, that initially was a concept in your mind and now it physically yeah. exists, which is really cool to think about. It's the same as the, as the iPhone once just an idea yeah. in someone's mind that now exists physically in the world. So I think anybody who brings ideas to life is, um, um, is a magician. <laughs> it's very yeah. Yeah, so I think my legacy, I, I just want to keep creating and keep doing good things and surround myself with really good people and, yeah, just have a nice time. Yeah, that's what life's about. Absolutely. All right, well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, John. It's been a pleasure having you on. It's been great to be on. Thank you so much, Elise. It was lovely to meet you. No worries, and I look forward to meeting you in person in Melbourne sometime. <laughs> that sounds great when you're actually allowed to travel. Yes, I can't wait to get back on a plane. Yeah. All right, thank you, John. Okay, thank you. Bye. Thanks for tuning in with me as your host, Elise Grace. Do me a favor and drop me a review on iTunes or if you're watching on YouTube, please like and subscribe. would love to know what you guys think of the podcast. It helps me keep creating killer content just like this. If you want to stay up to date with all my movements, please check me out on social media at Elise Grace.